Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Okay, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The battle for Kyiv is underway. Russian forces moving in on the Ukrainian capital. And we'll focus our first hour of the show today on the battle for Ukraine. We've got some great guests coming up today. We'll talk about the situation on the ground. How will this war impact Canadians, the global economy, and the potential for a wider cyber war that could hit home here in Canada? Okay, let's start now with this report from ABC News. Russian forces closing in on Kyiv, explosions rocking the capital city. Images like this one circulating on social media. Ukrainian military police in full combat gear joining the fight to defend the city. The emergency services called into action after shelling overnight. Ukrainian President Zelensky in another urgent address to his country, saying saboteurs have already entered the capital and that Russia's named him target number one, his family target number two. They're now in hiding. Just 60 miles north of Kyiv, after fierce fighting, Russian forces reportedly now in control of Chernobyl, the destroyed nuclear power plant. From our position in Kyiv, we could see fighter jets overhead, with the city triggering its emergency air raid alarm. Videos posted on social media from inside Ukraine show these attacks unfolding as the Ukrainians mount a stiff defense. Okay, okay, Ukrainian forces fighting bravely there. Reports that Russian troops trying to surround the capital city. Let's discuss now with my guest, Anton Sestritsin. Anton is a senior government relations consultant with Earnscliff Canada. He is Ukrainian-Canadian. He has family back in Ukraine. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Anton, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Anton, I'm sorry for what's happening in your in your country. L- let's talk about the, the situation on the ground. I, I know you have family uh, still in Kiev, right? Like, is that where your parents are? Uh, yeah, that's that's where they're moved after the invasion and annexation of Crimea back in 2014. So they have been internally displaced people in Kiev since 20, uh, 2014. Uh, and now it feels like this is the second time uh, that they're going to be displaced. Yeah. Have you been able to get in touch with them? Are they okay? Uh, yes, they, they left uh, early in the morning after the shelling of Kiev uh, stopped. Uh, as, uh, as you know, as your listeners know, at, at 5 a.m., uh, there was some shelling uh, in and around Kiev, um, so and and the sirens are still uh, are still ongoing uh, and calling people to go into shelters and basements. Wow, this is just heartbreaking to watch. I mean, you see the videos of these frightened families and children taking shelter in the city's underground subway system, and it, it just breaks your heart to see this happening in Europe. What are your thoughts on the, the resistance here that's being put up by Ukrainian fighters? Because I, I guess the, the perception is Russia would just roll in and just take over this country. But, I mean, you know the country better than, better than we do. Like, how, how fiercely will Ukrainians fight back? 
Uh, oh, there is no doubt, Mike, that uh, the Ukrainian soldiers are the heroes, not only of Ukraine, but of the entire democratic world today. They are defending not only Ukrainian borders, but they are defending uh, democratic values right now. They are protecting the West from further Russian, Russian invasion. Um, we should not think that Putin's plan is just to stop in Ukraine. He wants to go further. He wants to restore Soviet Union or Russian Empire. Um, so so n- n- he, he doesn't want to stop, but Ukrainian soldiers will make sure that uh, that doesn't happen. They're, they're extremely brave. They're fighting. They're going to fight till the very end. Uh, it is too bad that many soldiers, uh, uh, you, you know, are, are giving their lives for this, but at least Ukrainian soldiers understand why they're doing this. They're protecting their homeland. They're protecting their loved ones. Uh, meanwhile, Russian troops are occupying Ukraine, uh, and they're there for all the wrong reasons because of their, uh, because of their leadership, because of Mr. Putin, uh, who's trying to, to, to restore uh, whatever glory that he's talking about. But I also want to pick up on the point that you made about uh, children and, 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 and women. Uh, just earlier today, um, there was some shelling in the Sumy region of Ukraine uh, where the Russian troops uh, sh- um, uh, fired at the shelter and, and kindergarten. Um, there are dead and seriously wounded uh, Ukrainians, including children. Um, and uh, also uh, earlier today, uh, there was an orphanage just outside of Kiev uh, that was bombarded by Russian troops. Uh, luckily, kids were not uh, on the premises, so uh, nobody was killed or wounded. Uh, but uh, these are the war crimes uh, that the Russian troops and the Russian government is committing, for which uh, I hope all of those involved will be prosecuted and brought to justice. All right. Well, that's really terrible to hear. I'm speaking to Anton Sestritsyn. He has family on the ground back in Ukraine. Anton, let's talk a little bit about the world's response to this Russian invasion of Ukraine. Canada, among many countries that is applying sanctions on Russia, do you think that we're being tough enough? Uh, no, the short answer is no. I, I don't believe we're being tough enough. Obviously, Ukrainians and, and the president of Ukraine, uh, he thanks uh, the United States, Canada, uh, the UK, EU, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and many other countries that have imposed sanctions in the last two days. Uh, but they're clearly, they don't go enough. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers need uh, military uh, lethal weapons right now to be able to defend Ukraine. Uh, there's also an urgent need for imposing a no-fly zone. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers desperately, uh, desperately need this uh, to be able to defend their borders and to not allow more Russian aircraft to cross into Ukrainian airspace. Uh, among other things, uh, how, how would how would a, how would a no-fly zone be enforced? Are you suggesting like NATO NATO would do that? Yes, yes. This, this is what Ukrainian leadership is asking, and frankly, uh, it's probably the most effective mechanism that can be used right now. Uh, the president is also calling for UN uh, peacekeeping troops on the ground. I mean, look, we're at the point in time where uh, Ukrainian leadership wants to see Western boots on the ground. Uh, this can change. This can change the, uh, the situation, um, and and I, I do not believe that uh, that this is an escalation. I mean, how how much further can Russia uh, escalate? Uh, and we have a moral obligation to support Ukraine in this battle. Do you see any evidence that you know America, the United Kingdom, Canada, and our allies, our NATO partners, have any appetite to do any any of the things you just called for? There, like there doesn't seem to be any kind of movement to get NATO involved in this or the United Nations. But your thoughts? 
Look, the situation changes very rapidly, right? And we need to, or we as the West need to adapt very fast, and we need to respond to those challenges. So I, 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 I'm, I'm confident that those conversations are, are happening, and I, I, I hope that the leadership in the United States and other countries understand the need to support Ukraine right now, uh, while the Russian troops are trying to encircle Kiev and uh, decapitate Ukrainian leadership. Um, the, the situation is pretty dire, and the support needs to, needs to be provided right now. All right, Ukrainian-Canadians speaking out on the war in Ukraine. My guest is Anton Sestritsyn. He has family still on the ground in, in Ukraine. Anton, what do you think is Putin's endgame here? I, I spoke to some analysts on the show yesterday. I had one, one analyst tells me he thinks that Putin just wants regime change. He wants to remove the current Ukrainian government, install some kind of puppet government, and then he would retreat. And then I had another analyst say, no, 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 he's going to keep going. He's going to roll right through Ukraine and keep invading other countries. What do you think is, is happening or what his endgame is? Look, uh, the Pentagon uh, has warned that Russia's primary aim appears to be to encircle Kiev and to, to, to get rid of its current government, to orchestrate a coup and install a puppet regime. Uh, I personally, uh, as I said previously, I do not believe that uh, he will stop on Ukraine. Why would he? Uh, if he's just getting slaps on the wrist, uh, then that only provokes him. Uh, the, the collective weakness provokes Putin. So if we appear to be weak right now, uh, who's going to be next? Well, certainly, I mean, countries that are uh, that that once formed Soviet Union are going to be his next uh, his next target. Uh, so we're talking about Moldova, we're talking about Baltic states, but also the other uh, other countries from former socialist camp, and and they understand this like no others. Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic. Uh, these countries, Romania, they, they understand that they're under threat. This is why uh, their militaries are now ramping up. Uh, the Americans and Canadians are sending more troops into Europe. Um, so we have to be, everybody's on high alert. Uh, but I do think that uh, his end goal is eventually going to be right. to go further. Last question for you, Anton. We take a look at the economic sanctions that have been imposed by Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom. I mean, these are being described as the toughest sanctions ever imposed. You know, Biden said yesterday that uh, these sanctions will effectively cripple the Russian economy. Do you think they will be that effective? Look, uh, uh, what's important to understand is that sanctions are not going to end the war. Sanctions are meant to weaken, uh, weaken your opponent and uh, to, to make your opponent sit with you at the table and negotiate. Uh, clearly, this has not happened. Uh, the shelling of Ukraine has intensified uh, after the la- latest round of sanctions was announced yesterday. Uh, I, I mean, clearly, the Russians read the sanctions as a slap on the wrist. I, I cannot interpret it otherwise, uh, because they're now shelling the capital city and going after Ukrainian political leadership. Um, so, so, so I do think we need to ramp it up. And, and look, economic sanctions will have attacks later down the road. Ukrainian armed forces are fighting the war right now. They're losing their lives right now, and they're bravely defending Ukrainian territory right now. So we need, we need solutions that can help uh, the Ukrainian armed forces and Ukrainian political leadership uh, today. Anton, thank you for coming on today. I hope your parents and your other relatives in Ukraine remain safe, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you, Mike. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the economic fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Could gas prices go up dramatically here? Let's check in with Dan McTagg now, President Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hi, Dan. Hey. 
Thanks a lot for doing this. It seemed like in the uh, the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion, oil prices went up, but they seemed to retreat a little bit yesterday. Like, what's what's the current situation? Well, the current situation has uh, Vladimir Putin uh, with a smile on his face. We refuse to sanction the thing that could uh, make him uh, most vulnerable and has uh, up to now enabled him to, uh, to attack uh, Europe, uh, Ukraine in particular. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, no sanction on oil and gas. When Biden made a statement yesterday afternoon, Oil was traded in the 98, 97, 99 range. As soon as he made the statement, it fell to 92. Uh, that might wow. be short-term gain, but it's long-term pain uh, as it destabilizes the world. Yeah, he uh, Biden, the U.S. president, as he announced these sanctions, none of them targeting any Russian bank that deals in, yeah. in Russian oil and gas. And, and the price of oil actually was falling during, <laughs> during the press conference as he announced yep. that. So you, think they, what, so you obviously think what they should sanction Russian oil. And gas, yeah. Oh, they have to. Otherwise, it's toothless, it's meaningless. Look, Canada has to sanction Russian oil and gas and banks and financial institutions involved with it. Second of all, they need to stop damn well importing it. We import half a billion dollars in Russian oil every year. I think it's a no-brainer. And finally, just look off the coast of, uh, with an eye shot of where you folks are. There's Russian vessels coming in there delivering 600,000 barrels of oil every day to Washington State and to California. This, this business of saying we'll get someone else to produce our fossil fuels while blocking pipelines and shutting down our energy sector is absolute madness. And now it has led the world to the precipice of global instability on a scale we have never seen, at least since the Second World War. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Dan, of Alberta Premier Jason Kenney speaking yesterday on this precise point. He met with the Ukrainian community in Alberta yesterday to show his support. He called on Trudeau to impose tougher sanctions on, on Russia. And he also called on America to import more Alberta oil. And have a listen to what he had to say here. This makes no sense as a matter of national security or of energy security. And so I call on Prime Minister Trudeau to pick up the phone and call the president and say it is time to move away from consuming, from financing Russian aggression. Okay, do you th does America import a lot of Russian oil, though? It's mostly it's mostly Europe. It's mostly Europe that that take. It's mostly Europe that consumes that oil, is it not? Yeah, but it's it, six hundred thousand barrels a day represents about eight uh, percent of the U.S. Uh, global needs. Uh, we would have had all uh, their own domestic need. Remember, United States and you talked. We talked about this before, Mike, a couple a couple of weeks ago. The United States used to produce thirteen million barrels of oil a day. It's now to eleven point five million barrels. The, this is a president who shut down the Keystone XL, which would be damn close yeah. to being able to deliver what he's missing. More importantly, he's actually gone after his own oil industry and said, "No, no, we don't want you doing this for the green agenda." While you know, laudable in terms of what it's trying to achieve, has actually destabilized the global world and, and our, our global affairs. And so, I think it's pretty obvious. Let's get back to what worked, energy independence and energy security, because they go hand in hand. Right now, Europe is on its knees. Italy can't say a bloody word. 90% of its natural gas comes from uh, Vladimir Putin. He's got them over the proverbial barrel. It's time, folks, to put aside the climate objectives and start dealing with fundamentals. We have a very insecure sure. world. There won't be much left if we don't. Hey, Dan, 30 seconds here. We saw yeah. oil prices stabilize, as you mentioned yesterday. Do you anticipate, though, there's still jeopardy for oil prices to go up dramatically here and gas prices to spike? No, no not unless uh, there's an attack on a NATO nation like uh, like Poland. Um, so right now, they're going to stay nice and low. Uh, uh, Biden knows this. He needs uh, to win the, uh, the midterms. He knows the gas uh, prices are a killer in that country. They're not in Canada. You can get away with that. But uh, bottom line... 
nothing is going to push up oil prices in the foreseeable future. Dan, thank you for coming on. Let's continue the discussion about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. Russian forces at this hour moving in in the capital of Kiev. A battle underway for control of the city. Let's talk about the global fallout from this conflict now. World stock markets on a roller coaster ride. Gas prices, as we discussed in the previous segment, set to spike. We're also watching for possible cyber attacks in this conflict. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Saul Klein, Dean of the Peter Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Klein, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Let's talk, first of all, about this potential for cyber attacks here. As we see world powers inflict sanctions on Russia could Russia retaliate with cyber attacks on Canada and our allies? Yeah, I think there's multiple ways that we could see a reaction from Russia. First of all, let's bear in mind that um, President Putin was very clear threat in terms of threatening any other country for supporting Ukraine or for interfering in the, in the area. So he's got form for, for making threats and, and, and delivering on those threats. In terms of cyber attacks, I think there's a range of different options that we might see exercised. Some of them might be accidental. Some might be deliberate. On the former, for example, we know that Russia has launched major cyber attacks in in Ukraine. So leading up to the invasion, there was significant disruption of Ukrainian networks. Uh, One of the major banks was taken down. A lot of the infrastructure um, has has been hacked into. And this is not the first time. So Russia has done this previously. And the reason I'm saying that is back in 2017, when there were a number of cyber attacks in Ukraine, some of those viruses spilled over and escaped out of Ukraine and actually impacted um, our infrastructure and our networks in North America. So we had a number of uh, hospitals, for example, whose systems were taken down completely. So there's always the risk of an unintentional um, flow of activity. So just think of it as a virus that actually spreads. And unfortunately, we've had too much uh, example of that. The, the other way where I think there's already Russian engagement in, call it cyber warfare, is on disinformation campaigns. And we've got lots of evidence of Russia interfering with election campaigns, spreading false information, essentially trying to erode the trust that we have in our institutions, in our democratic societies. And I think he sees that this is a way to weaken uh, democracies, weaken countries in the West. Now, at an extreme, we could see deliberate cyber attacks on, uh, on our infrastructure. I don't see that as likely at the moment. Um, that would be a major escalation. I think what we're more likely to see is a lot more of the or maybe a ramping up of activity we've seen up to now. Um, denial of service attacks, um, some hacking into into websites. We've seen that in terms of government websites in Canada, some ransomware attacks. So you've got this network of uh, of hackers who are highly qualified in Russia, um, not clear how much the Russian government is... Um, is guiding their activities, but they certainly aren't stopping them. Would you so say, to the extent, you 
Would you yeah, say, sorry. would you say, Doctor Klein, at this point, that it would be wise for governments and corporations to steal themselves for in in the face of potential cyber threats from Russia as this conflict goes on? Uh, absolutely, but I don't think that's new. I mean, I, yeah. I think we've seen the the pressure on both the private and public um, internet systems, websites that have been hardening to try and make them more um, more resilient to these kinds of attacks. But yeah, I do see the attacks likely to increase. And depending on what happens on the, on the battlefield, we could see Russian activity ramp up. Is it possible for Canada and our allies in the United States, the United Kingdom, to employ these tactics in retaliation against Russia uh, with cyber attacks going the other way against Russia? For sure. Um, and we've, we've seen some of that already. And, you know, we've got other examples of states who have actually been able to use cyber attacks. So Israelis, for example, were able to put some viruses into Iranian um, uh, nuclear operations to try um, re- reduce their ability to, to build a nuclear bomb by interfering with the centrifuges. Um, so certainly there are opportunities, um, and I, I think that's part of the deterrence factor that would prevent Russia from being too overt in going after and trying to take down critical infrastructure. But, you know, I think as we've seen already, Putin is somewhat unpredictable here, and he seems to be willing to absorb a fair bit of pain um, and a fair bit of suffering on the Russian people, let alone anybody else in order to achieve his objectives. So it's not clear how much deterrence would work. Speaking to Dr. Saul Klein from the School of Business at the University of Victoria, Dr. Klein, your thoughts on the economic consequences of this uh, fallout of this war here. Do you anticipate this could drive further inflation, maybe lower economic growth, disruption to financial markets? We've seen stock markets on a roller coaster ride here the last couple of days. Your thoughts? The short answer is absolutely we will. Um, we will see some immediate effects in terms of inflation. While oil prices spiked yesterday, they did come down, but they're still at a very high level and could spike again. Um, so oil prices will have a direct effect on inflation. Similarly, to the extent that the sanctions start biting, in, imports or exports out of Russia and Ukraine are actually going to be disrupted significantly. And we'll see those impacted in global prices for, for grains, for many raw materials. Now, some of the producers in Canada might benefit from that because global prices will increase, but consumers will certainly pay a heavier price. In the short term, gas prices can rise very quickly. Um, within weeks, we could see grain prices rising dramatically and see some of those being passed on to consumers. And then beyond that, there is that total disruption that can come from instability. We are in a very tightly interlinked world. And certainly if you think about the Europeans who are very dependent on Russian gas for for energy, to the extent that that has a negative impact on the European economy, that will certainly spill over into Canada and the rest of the global economy. Do you think there's an argument for increased oil exports from Canada, say, to the United States to displace Russian oil that America is currently importing right now? 
Well, the the oil isn't really going into the U.S. from Russia. Um, Russian oil, Russian energy, it's, it's actually as much natural gas as it is oil, is primarily going into Western Europe and increasingly going into China. Um, it's also very difficult to think of ramping up uh, Canadian production quickly enough to actually have any impact. Now, there has been an attempt to try build up supplies of natural gas in Europe to withstand um, a reduction from from Russia, but there simply isn't enough capacity available to be able to offset any loss in that. Do you think that with the potential for a humanitarian crisis in Eastern Europe with refugees fleeing a war-torn Ukraine, does that have economic consequences for the region and the world too? Uh, certainly has economic consequences for the region, and I think we're already starting to see you know, the mass flights of refugees into Poland and that will put a real damper on the Polish economy. Germany has announced that they will accept um, refugees as well. So I'm not sure that has as much of a global impact, but it certainly has a regional impact in, in Europe. Dr. Klein, thank you very much for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks All very much. All right. Thank you. Dr. Saul Klein there. He's the dean of the Peter Gustafson School of Business. All right, let's keep talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. The battle for Kiev is underway. The Ukrainian capital, there have been blasts and explosions heard throughout the night. The United States is warning right now that Russian forces are seeking to encircle the Ukrainian capital. Ukrainian officials are saying the capital has been hit by missiles. Uh, Vladimir Putin has given another speech uh, threatening the political leaders of Ukraine, once again calling them Nazis. It appears to be a regime change on the mind of the Russian president. Let's check in once again with David Roger Marples, professor of Russian and East European history at the University of Alberta. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. David, thanks for coming on once again. You're very welcome. Hey, David, when I spoke to you the other day, we were talking about how this could potentially unfold. Like, could Russian troops just go into those disputed eastern parts of Ukraine and no further? And, and I, I vividly remember you saying to me just the other day that there was potential for shelling of the capital of Ukraine. And uh, you proved to be eerily accurate there. What, what are your thoughts on how this has unfolded here so far? Well, it's clearly a full-scale attack. And it's one that is artificially directed at a so-called nationalist regime in Ukraine and an attempt, obviously, by Russia to take over the government of Ukraine, likely uh, round up several figures uh, dating back to 2014 uh, when um, there was a campaign to regain the Donbass launched by Kiev uh, under the temporary leadership of um, Turchinov, the acting president. Russia's already announced plans to detain Turchinov for crimes against the Donbass. And I've no doubt they intend to detain and replace Zelensky and the members of the cabinet as well. So I think this is a clear operation. Kiev is the first one. I mean, overall, the target, the goal is supposedly to um, protect the Donbass from nationalist Ukrainians who've committed genocide there. Yeah. But we're a long way from the Donbass. I mean, Kiev is, is several hundred miles away from the Donbass. And this looks to me more like a takeover of the government, an attempt to demilitarize Ukraine and make it a neutral state 
closely under Russian control. So if, if, if Putin succeeds in that and gets what he wants with some regime change in Ukraine, install, I don't know, some kind of puppet government there in the Ukraine capital, what, what comes after that? Do you think Russia occupies the country or do they pull some forces back or do they, do they keep rolling into another country? Like, where, where do you think this is going? I think he will stop with Ukraine. Um, Belarus to the north is already uh, under, under Russian control, more or less. In fact, one of the one of the movements of the armies came from the north, came from Belarus, where Russian troops were involved in an exercise uh, between February 10 and 20. They stayed over after that and then invaded Ukraine. So I think it may stop there. I don't think uh, Russia would invade a NATO country. Yeah. But nor do I think that the situation will be stable if Russia takes over Ukraine. There will be resistance for years and years. And no matter how powerful Russia is compared to Ukraine, and it certainly is a very powerful military state, in the long term, I don't think it will be able to hold Ukraine. Yeah, I was, I was wondering the same thing. If this turns into some sort of long-term occupation of the country, could you see Ukrainian resistance cells continuing to fight and, and this turning into a, some sort of a quagmire for, for Russia? Yeah, that's exactly what I would foresee. Yeah. Just as the same thing happened in Afghanistan, which right. presumably was supposed to be a fairly easy ride for the Russians. And now I think Ukraine would definitely continue to resist, whether it's passive resistance or guerrilla warfare, or things of that nature. Yeah. I cannot see uh, outside the Donbass and Crimea uh, any part of Ukraine accepting Russian rule indefinitely. And I've been corresponding with some people inside Ukraine who've said the same thing, that they will continue to resist no matter what, what, what means they have and would never accept this kind of imposed government as a permanent solution. Ukraine's come too far down the democratic road to go back again. Speaking of David Marples from the University of Alberta, you mentioned, David, that you don't think that Putin would invade a, a NATO country. There are some calls for... NATO to get involved here, maybe with a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And I note just in the last short period of time here this morning, NATO has issued a statement saying they're shoring up defensive positions in the eastern part of the alliance, but they say it's preventive, proportionate, non-escalatory. So some NATO troop movements here, but these do you anticipate NATO in any way getting involved in this thing? I don't think so, because yeah. Putin has made it quite clear that he would resort to some major force. He didn't specify exactly what, but the implication was that if any attack came from NATO, he would resort to nuclear weapons. At least that's the implication. Yeah. And that would, of course, spell something unimaginable. So I don't think that NATO will get involved in that way, but I think they'll help uh, the neighboring states uh, in defensive modes, and they will also supply Ukraine with more and more equipment. Okay, what's your analysis of the resistance here being put up by U Ukrainian forces here? We just have a minute left. They seem to be fighting quite bravely. They're fighting very bravely, and I just saw a clip of the president himself standing in the street of Kiev saying, we are here, yeah. and glory to Ukraine, and several uh, people with him. Um, this is a very brave show of defiance, and all credit to him. I mean, I, don't, I think it's 
he's in unimaginable danger right now, but he's not left the city. No, he's a marked he's a marked man for sure. Thank you, David, for coming on today. I appreciate it again. Yep, anytime. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the B.C. government's new used car tax. Uh, This one was in this week's budget, kind of a line item in there, flying under the radar a little bit on this one. But I'll tell you, we talked about this one on the show yesterday. And man, oh man, I'm still getting emails about this one. So here is the deal on this. Starting this fall, if you buy a used car in a private sale... You will be charged 12% provincial sales tax on the actual sale price of the vehicle or or the government's estimated value of the car, whichever is higher. Okay, so let's say you buy a used car and you get a great deal on this car. Like, let's say you're a shrewd negotiator you know, you get a great deal. You're you're thrilled. You're happy. You got a great deal on a used car. You report that to the government. You're going to pay your taxes on it, okay? The government says, no, no, no. We think this car is worth more than what you paid for it. So you have to pay higher tax. We're going to charge you the tax on the estimated value of the car. Not what you paid for it. If the estimated value is higher. Why is the government doing this? Well, they say because they've got a closed loophole here. Like people are cheating the tax man. Maybe you put in a, like a fake receipt, claim you paid less than what you actually paid. You can't do that. The government's got to have their taxes. So they bring this system in now. So now it doesn't really matter what you paid for it. If the, if the government's estimated value of the car is higher, that's what they're going to charge you in the tax on. Now have a listen to this. So this has come up in question period this week a few times in the legislature. So here is... Liberal critic Peter Millibar here uh, questioning the finance minister about this. Selena Robinson, have a listen. So when will the premier start to actually live up to one of his campaign promises and actually start to take steps to make life more affordable for British Columbia instead of adding taxes? So, Mr. Speaker, clearly the member opposite doesn't know how to quite read the budget document. Uh, so I, I think it's really important to certainly clarify that the, the marketplace uh, PST that uh, is about closing a loophole. Because, Mr. Speaker, if you have a, a bricks-and-mortar store, uh, you have to charge PST. Like, that's standard. Uh, and we certainly saw with activity through the pandemic that lots of folks went online and are using uh, um, you know, different marketplaces to sell their wares. Well, they, should too, they too should be collecting PST. So this is about closing a loophole. It's not a new tax. It's closing a loophole. Oh, okay. So they're saying like, if you, this applies to like a private sale, right? So if you buy a car on like Craigslist or Facebook or something, you want to, government wants to make sure they get their cut of the action here. Make sure you pay your taxes. All right. Let's discuss this now with my guest, BC Liberal leader, Kevin Falcon. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And, and I have to say, as a former finance minister, she was uh, critiquing our finance critic, Peter Millibar, there, saying he hadn't read things properly, and, and yet she gave an answer that was totally unrelated to the question. She's talking yeah. about online marketplaces where they're going to go after you for selling things on your Facebook marketplace or on eBay or where, wherever you decide to sell things online. Um, what this budget is all about is going after regular folks that are selling or buying used cars or equipment or whatever the case may be, and they're going to try and tax it all. It's just not right. Okay, well, the rules are the rules, though, right? I mean, 
If you sell, if you buy a used car, you pay provincial sales tax on that. Now, some people might get mad at that and say, well, you know, you paid sales tax on it when you bought it, but when someone bought it new, and then every time it's sold again, you pay it, you keep paying provincial sales tax. But that's, those are the rules. And so I guess she's saying what, that some people were not paying their taxes. No, right. well, I think, I, I, yeah, but I think she was actually answering a whole different thing. She was talking about yeah. the online new marketplace taxes they're, they're going to charge for, for, it's in addition to the Netflix tax they brought in for Netflix. They're now expanding it to other online uh, things. But, but uh, with specific to the used car issue, right. here's the real problem. So just to give you an example, my wife and I used to have a Dodge Grand Caravan. So I quickly went out and searched, you know, what is a used Dodge Grand Caravan? And I found this is a real Craigslist. Uh, listing in Surrey for ten thousand dollars for a 2014 Dodge Grand Caravan. Now, under the NDP approach, they're going to say, "Well, gee, Mr. Falcon, you bought that for ten thousand dollars. The book value is twelve thousand five hundred, and therefore, you've but because you've gone out and, and made a good deal here, that twenty five hundred dollars you saved, we're going to charge you tax on that as right. if you paid the higher price, whether you did or not." And therefore, you're going to pay another almost couple hundred bucks. That'd be about $175 that you're going to have to give the government. And here's the worst part. Often people that are buying used cars are getting good deals because there's something wrong with the car. Maybe it's, uh, it's got no exhaust or, or maybe it's got a cracked you know, um, uh, header or something like that that they can think to themselves, well, I can fix that and I'll make it better, and et cetera. There's lots of people that do that. But no, in NDP world... They're going to just take what the average sale price of a car and charge you the difference, charge you the tax on the difference. And I just think it's really wrong. And here's where it gets worse. Uh. If you actually say, well, this is not right. I got a good deal because there's some things wrong. Then they're going to force you to go get an appraisal. You have to bring that appraisal certificate of appraisal into ICBC and convince them that it's acceptable. I mean, this is just... Uh, this it just goes beyond the pale. Oh, so so there is there is an appeal process on it then. Like if you buy a car and let's say it's a bucket of bolts, it's a, it's a rusty old car and it, it's worth less than the average market value of that make and model and year year manufacturer of that vehicle, you can go to ICBC and plead your case and get and pay less tax. Is that that's what I hear you're you telling right? us? But okay. but the problem is you're going to have to go and pay and get a, a get an appraisal uh, oh. done on the car. And then bring it in and go and try and make your case with ICBC. But look, at the end of the day, here's the problem. The problem is they start with the assumption that everyone out there, every British Columbian out there is, is, is cheating. And, and I really don't like that. If there's a, a case of where they think there's cheating going on, deal with it. But I think the yeah. fact that they just assume everyone's cheating is not right. And the other thing I just want to add, in their own budget, if you look at the notes, when we dug this thing up, because they hide all the, the stuff they don't want you to see buried deep in the budget, but I, I think it was on page 91, but there, you'll see a quote there that says individuals involved in private vehicle transactions are more likely to be low to medium income, often living in a rural area. So they're, uh, they're going after the folks that, that are least able to afford the extra hit. Yeah, I mean, they're straight up. It's right in the document that these are these are the people they're going after with this tax. Low and middle income earners who are more likely to, to buy a used vehicle. Right. And then just to and then just to really rub salt in the wound, they very quietly in another page uh, on the document uh, relieve themselves of the holdback on pay that they're supposed to be getting. In other words, we we had a law in place back when we were in power that said if the if the government's in deficit, ten percent of your uh, of your cabinet pay is withheld until you get back to balanced budget, and that was to try and ensure that you know that cabinet ministers are understanding the 
the challenges and sacrifices British Columbians are make, are making while we're all in deficit and and until we get out of it. But they they changed that law so that they can all give themselves all the cabinet are giving themselves almost a twenty thousand dollar increase over the next few years uh, in cabinet pay. They did that very quietly. They didn't talk about it at all until we dug it up and started talking about it. So you know while they're going after low income folks who are just trying to buy a used car at a good price and they're going to ding them. They're, they're giving themselves almost a $20,000 pay increase at the same time. Okay, okay. Right. the finance minister here, Selena Robinson, said, look, what we're doing here is we're just catching up with other provinces, like other provinces do the same thing, that they charge the sales tax on the estimated value of the car, not what you actually pay for it. And I guess the rationale is, like you said, like maybe they think there's cheating going on. And I have no doubt there there is some cheating going on, like... You know, you might buy a car and, and submit a fake receipt with a lower amount on it that you actually paid to, to avoid paying more tax, right? I mean, we know, let's not kid ourselves, we know that kind of stuff does happen, right? Yes, I, I, it almost yeah. certainly does. But but let's think about the people that we're really going after and hitting here, right? I, I just, yeah. I think at the end of the day, you know, some, some poor single mom trying to get a decent price on a, a Dodge Caravan in Surrey uh, shouldn't have to pay an extra couple hundred bucks uh, because, and, and by the way, th- th- this may not be a screaming deal or anything. It's just, you know, it's a, it's 10,000 bucks for a 2014 Grand Dodge Grand Caravan. And I just think that the idea that government knows best and says, well, that's too bad. We think the average value is uh, tw- $2,500 higher, therefore pay us more tax. It's just, I don't know. Is this really the right thing? Is this where government really needs to find its nickels when you see how they're spending money and they're doubling the debt for the first time to over $100 billion in this budget? It just like they spend like drunken sailors on the one hand and then they really nickel and dime, you know, the folks that can least you, afford it. I, you, I just don't feel good about that. You take a look in the, the line item on this used car tax scheduled to bring in, I believe next year, $30 million to government. So, you know, that's, well, 30 million bucks is 30 million bucks, but boy, that's a lot of money coming out of the pockets of, as as the government's own budget documents say, low and middle income earners, right? Your thoughts? Well, well, exactly. I mean, look, and this is one of the things that I've been saying about the budget. Uh, look, at the end of the day, if if we judge government by results, which I really think we should, if you look at everything, housing prices, highest they've ever been in the history of the province, groceries, highest cost increases and inflationary increases we've ever seen. Gas prices in BC, the highest in North America, even though the NDP promised they would deal with that. Um, even, you know, rental rates are have gone up thousands of dollars in Surrey, over $3,200 in the last five years the NDP have been in power. In the Minister of Finance's own riding in the Tri-Cities, they've gone up over $4,500. And at some point, we just have to say, with everything skyrocketing in costs, squeezing families, this budget did nothing to relieve any of that burden, and I think that's the big miss that I see here, Mike. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. All the best. Okay. Let's talk about this unaffordable housing market now and home prices once again soaring out of reach of non-millionaire buyers. Even formerly affordable areas like the Fraser Valley, huge price increases over the last year. What about young people, young families trying to buy their first home in this market? These days, it seems like the only thing a young family can afford to buy is a condo. Now, has that just become the new normal 
like a permanent reality that a young family should just abandon their dreams of buying a detached house. Now check this out. Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West with a post on Twitter that went viral on this topic. He writes, I listened to a 70-year-old self-described public policy expert explain that young people don't want to have kids or live in single-family homes anymore. They don't attach any value to having a backyard. I invited him to come spend some time with me and discover just how wrong he is. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Mayor West, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks for having me again, Mike. Okay, so this tweet that you posted, obviously getting a, a lot of attention. And so I'm curious, like, where did this exchange happen? Who is this public policy expert that you had this discussion with? <laughs> well, you're right. People have had a, a strong reaction. And uh, I haven't named the individual because I don't think that's fair, uh, because I'm sure there would be a number of comments directed his way. Uh, but it, it's someone who made the comments in a in a Zoom meeting that was being held in our area, and it included uh, uh, policymakers, uh, elected officials, uh, realtors, housing organizations, and you know it wasn't a, a public meeting; it was uh, an invite meeting. Um, so I haven't named the individual. I don't think that'd be be fair to them. But uh, I certainly do take exception uh, to the comments that he made. I said so directly to him. Uh, because I just think it is so out of touch with what the reality of people is. You know, I was sitting there listening to the comments, and he, he was so definitive. This is the way it is. Young people don't want to have kids. Young people don't want to live in single-family homes. Uh, later on, he went on to say that young people don't want to own. They want to rent. And I'm thinking, okay, first off, he's talking about my demographic. I'm... 36 years old. I have two uh, young boys. Uh, and I'm thinking his comments have n no resemblance whatsoever to the discussions and conversations I'm having with friends my age. They yeah. do want to have kids. They do want to have enough space to raise their kids, enough space to, to have them be able to live in. It's just that they can't afford it, Mike. Yeah, That's yeah. the difference. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a choice. And, and this idea that oh, no, nobody wants to own anymore. Nobody wants to live in more than uh, 500 square feet anymore. And, and people want to fork over half their paycheck for that <laughs> privilege and should be happy about it. Uh, this is not the first time I've heard this type of comment. Uh, and I think it, it really dominates some of the academic and policy and political circles. And again, I think it is so disconnected from the reality, certainly of the people I speak to. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like you're giving up when you, if that's the attitude on this housing challenge that we face, that, okay, we're, we're faced with this distorted, unaffordable market. Um, so we just throw our hands up and say, well, you know, young people don't want to live in a traditional detached home anymore anyway, so they just want to live in a condo. So what's the problem? Like, is that the way you interpret it? Like, this is somehow an totally. attempt to, to rationalize or, or explain an, a housing market and there's nothing we can do about it? Or 100%. And that's why I took exception to it, is, is because it's this idea, this is what you want. You know, uh, yeah. 
this is what you want. This is what's good for you. This is what's right for you. And I'm thinking, who the hell are you to tell people what sort of uh, choice they should be able to make? And again, to me, it's the fact that people aren't having a choice. You know, I know friends who are trying to raise two kids in a one-bedroom condo, and the parents have a mattress where they sleep on the middle of the living room. You know, that's the level of desperation people have have taken to. Uh, And if we can't even square ourselves up to the reality, how are we ever going to begin to tackle these challenges? That's the part that I I, I found really difficult to to listen to. It, It was basically... It was being used as a defense of the status quo and right. dismiss the notion that we really need to do anything other than continue to build as many 500 square foot condos as we can. Right, and I also think it's a bit dismissive of the of the desires and dreams that any young person or young family would have. That I think I would agree with you. I think clearly anyone would love to live in a detached home and have a yard for their kids to run around in and their and their dog to go in the backyard. I mean, this is. You know, they used to call that the the dream, right? That's the Canadian dream. The American dream is a is a home with a yard, and obvi- you know. So I think to try and suggest that somehow that people, young people, don't want that, I, I would agree with you. It, it's wrong. But that said, where are we supposed to build these detached homes for people? I mean, you've got a limited land base here. I mean, there's a lot of talk about rezoning single family home neighborhoods and densifying them, right? So how do we how do we solve that? Like how do you make these homes affordable for people? Well, that is more than the million dollar question now, isn't it? And look, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I've got the the silver bullet. This is what we do, and bam, it's done. I'm making a couple points. First, we have to ground ourselves in the reality of of people's lives. That's number one. And if we can't do that, we're not going to be able to find solutions to this. Second, I can tell you some of the things that we've done in my city. Okay, so we've really tried to make a focus on ground-orientated housing uh, and try to create a, a spectrum of housing choice. So yes, there are certainly condos being built, there's rental being built, but we're also building a lot of ground-orientated housing, duplexes, yeah. uh, threeplexes, fourplexes, townhomes, row homes. Uh, you know, some of our uh, larger residential lots. Uh, are, are you know are being split into a small lot residential where you know someone can still get a patch of grass someone can still have a little bit of a backyard um, you know it's hard because in a city like mine you know we're just a small cog in this you know in this bigger wheel and it and it's really challenging because there are so many forces at work that are are driving all of this uh, so from my perspective it's about doing what I can at the city, and then also using my voice to try and articulate what I'm hearing from people I talk to every day in in this city and in other cities, uh, and hopefully, you know, get the attention of other levels of government to begin to make some changes. You made made a statement there that I, I resonated a bit with me, and that's on row housing. And sometimes I wonder why we don't see more of that model or type of housing, which seems to be popular and common in other countries in, in Europe, you know, I remember seeing lots of row housing where my where my dad grew up in, in Ireland, for example, but you don't really seem to see a lot of it here. And I heard a pitch once from a developer who said, why don't we allow more row housing that people can own 
outright themselves, like a fee simple. You'd own the home, you'd own the yard. It would not be like a strata unit. It would, yeah, it'd be a row house. It would be attached to the house next to you. The yard could be pretty small, but you would own it. It'd be a fee simple ownership. And then at least people then would have a backyard for their kids, right? It, it, you are speaking my language. We have uh, a number of them in Poco. They were built in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. One of my friends who I went to school with, uh, his dad worked construction, mom worked retail. That's where they lived. And I remember yeah. going over to the house, and uh, it was fee simple. They owned it. They had a bit of a backyard. They had a little bit of a front yard. Uh, and it was a great place for working class people uh, to live. We need more of that. And here's an open invitation to anyone who's listening who's in this business. If you want to build something like that, contact my office in Porco Quitla. Okay. Okay, and and we will make it happen. But you know what I also find, Mike, too, is sometimes when I have discussions with uh, developers who want to come to town to build, and I, and I push that because I, I'm so big on that type of housing. But as you can imagine, Mike, right now, uh, you can make way more money, put way more money uh, in the bank account as a developer or builder if you're squeezing out uh, a condominium yeah, sure. of... Uh, you know, hundreds of 500 square foot uh, condos, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's the, the give and take that uh, needs to happen. So okay. the city's got to make it easier. And the people who are in the business of building uh, need to come to the table, be willing to deliver that type of housing as well. All right. Welcome back. Talking housing with Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Lots of calls. Brian and Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, Mike, I think one thing that's kind of missing from the picture is larger condos that have three and four bedrooms or even two levels for the condo. Uh, bigger condos for families would help. You could put a grass roof on there for the park space. Brad, Brad, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if we have Brad still. Do we still have Mayor West? Okay, I guess we don't. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, Brad, are you there? I'm here, Mike. Yeah, okay. What what did you think of that? What the caller had to say there? Like, why not build bigger condos, like three, four bedroom condos? I think it's a great idea, and I can tell you that's one of the things we we did in Poco shortly after I was elected mayor. Is we brought in a policy that stipulates if you're going to build a an apartment building, a condominium building, uh, there has to be a good percentage of the units be uh, two bedroom, three bedroom plus. Uh, because you got to have that mix. It, it's this idea that you know, you're going to put up a, a hundred units and they're all going to be four and 500 square feet, which may maximize the profit out of uh, the building, but it's certainly very restrictive in choices for families. Back to the phone calls, Mike and Vernon. Hi, Mike. Hey, good morning. First of all, I'd like to uh, compliment Brad West. Every time I hear him on the radio, he's so thoughtful, well thought out comments and, uh, and ideas. Um, you know, in Vernon... We have, I'm in an older neighborhood, and uh, we have some of these, uh, we have duplexes, fourplexes, and some older walk-ups. You know, they're two-bedroom walk-up apartments, but they have backyards to them and stuff like that. And what he's talking about with row housing and things like that is great, and I'd like to see some of that start to develop up here. But the other thing that he made a really good point, and it was the fee simple side of row housing, because we know that a lot of people are really... Um, kind of tired of the uh, the condo um, strata councils and things like that, and also homeowner um, associations are a huge problem too. We need to let people be able to live without having all of these rules and regulations 
and constant stipulations put over them, and they'll be more yeah. willing to move into that kind of housing. Thank you, Mike, for that. Yeah, I mean, just let people buy it and own it. Brad West. I totally agree. I mean, you hear the horror stories uh, from folks about dealing with uh, stratas, and, you know, taking on a strata council role, that's that's a big role for someone who, you know, is a volunteer and, you know, probably doesn't have expertise. Uh, I, I think this idea that is kind of being pushed that, you know, we should just give up on home ownership and, and people should lower their expectations is wrong. Yeah, right. uh, home ownership is important. It, it has, man, it has helped so many working and middle-class people. Uh, and I, I think the future should include ownership and, and maybe new forms of ownership, like we're talking about with fee simple row homes. But just the yeah. idea that everyone's going to rent, you're going to pay half your paycheck to rent and you'd be happy about it. No, I, I don't think that's a good future for our province. Norm and Burnaby. Hi, Norm. Go ahead. How are you? Yes. Hey, Brad. I grew up in Poco and moved there in 65. I've been a mortgage broker and a realtor for 25 years. Uh, your policy fellow there was actually half right. I have a lot of young buyers who don't want a house and a big yard and a garage full of tools. They are quite happy with the two-bedroom condo. So that is where a lot of the young ones are. not they, And they don't want a cabin up on the lake either. They just want to simplify their lives. Secondly, I work with builders, and one fellow bought a house in Poco, two 33-foot lots, knocked it down. He had such trouble with your city hall, and this is every city hall in the lower mainland, trying to get all the right approvals and to uh, uh, a couple of coach houses, laneway homes, and they said, well, you have to subtract that square footage from the house. Well, then the house is underbuilt. Then people want four bedrooms in a den. So long story short, he finally just said to heck with it, sold it, took him three years, wasted a lot of time and money. So that's something that all city halls need to address, including yours. Thank okay, you. Okay, let's get the mayor's response on that. Brad West, go ahead. We just have 30 seconds here. Yeah, there's no question that we're not perfect. It's something I work on every day. I would invite the gentleman to contact my office, as people often do, and I dig into these things and try and uh, push them along. I-, I will say, though, look, I agree. In terms of his earlier comment, I agree. There are some people who want to live in a condo, and I don't mm-hmm. judge that. I don't think that's wrong. I respect their choice. My issue is this idea that there's no other alternative, that all young people right. want that. Uh, I think that that's wrong. Okay. A lot of people still would like to have uh, a patch of grass and, by the way, would like to have a family, would like to have yeah. kids. <laughs> I think so, too. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike.